Welcome to another episode of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. My name is Jesse Arlen, and I'm here today with Dr. Alison Vaca, and we'll be talking about her 2017 monograph, Non-Muslim Provinces Under Early Islam, Islamic Rule and Iranian Legitimacy in Armenia and Caucasian Albania, published in Cambridge University Press's series, Cambridge Studies in Islamic Civilization. Dr. Vaca comes to us today from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, where she is an assistant professor in the Department of History, having received her PhD from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, in 2013. Welcome, Dr. Vaca. Hi, thanks for having me. You bet. And um, before we get started into talking about the book itself, I thought it might just be interesting for listeners to hear a little bit about your educational background, and perhaps if you'd like to share kind of the path in general that led to your interest in medieval, uh, Middle Eastern, or Islamic studies um, broadly, and in particular, Armenian studies. Sure. Well, those are actually two different stories. Um, Uh Getting into Islamic history was from travel, largely in West Africa, and then from there moving up to North Africa to study Arabic. But I was first introduced to um, Armenian studies through a site visit to an Armenian church when I took a course in Eastern Christianities. And after I graduated um, from Nazareth College in Rochester, New York, this is my undergrad, I went on to study early Islamic history in Jerusalem under a Fulbright grant. Mm. And I figured that when I was there, I should learn a little bit more about Jerusalemite history beyond just the seventh and eighth centuries. And I took it as an opportunity to learn Armenian study the Armenian language. When I was there, I kind of thought this is a good time to to marry these two interests between uh, learning about the Armenian church and Armenian history and also early Islamic history. So I started looking into the early Islamic period in Armenia, and I found several uh, main sources, which would be Taravonian's work and also Laurent, uh, L'Armenie entre Byzance et l'Islam, which was published in 1919, although it was very helpfully rewritten in 1980. Mm-hmm. So these are like the two main things that I found um, by moving into early um, early Islamic history in particular and how it, how it related to uh, medieval Armenian history. Great. And just out of curiosity, who was it that you learned um, Armenian with when you were in Jerusalem? Actually, I, I learned it with uh, Sergio Laporta. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and he uh, he has continued uh, to to play a large role um, in how in, in learning Armenian, but also uh, as a co-author for a text we're working on right now. Oh, that's great. Together, yeah. Um, so, kind of moving a little more in the direction of the book specifically, um, what sparked the interest initially in this book project, or what is kind of the background story that led to the writing of of this monograph of yours? Sure. Well, as I said, I was largely interested in trying to figure out what was going on in the Mayid and early Abbasid periods, since there wasn't really that much that had been written recently on these topics. And as I was working on these periods, I could tell that the pre-Islamic period, uh, that is the Sasanian period, was still very important to the way that we talk about medieval rule. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to figure out that transition from Sasanian into early Islamic period. And you can see, for example, that historians who are writing in both Arabic and in Armenian rely on the vocabulary to describe Khalifa world. They're actually modeling off of the Sasanians. The most obvious example of this is the story of Bua, a Khalifa general whose campaigns into Armenia in the 850s 
sparked major, major vitriol. But several of the passages about Buwa's campaigns in Tolfmarotsuni are in fact cribbing on Yahishe, our main source for Avarai. So what does that mean? It means that we can't study the early Islamic period unless we also understand what's going on in the Sasanian period and how these sorts of works were used were used to, to talk about the 8th and 9th centuries and forced me to think about the 10th century. We were talking about a portrait of, a portrait of Gagik on Achtamar, on the uh, facade of Achtamar, and how it relates to Sasanian imagery. So this is uh, relying somewhat on Dernier uh, Sasan's work in Armenian art. And I started to rethink my project to place it into a broader setting, where the Sasanians are still front and center in Iranian political discourse into the 10th century and even well beyond. The vast majority of sources that I used for this book were written in the 9th and 10th centuries, so it made me stop for a minute to ask why authors of the 9th and 10th centuries might be so interested in the Sasanians. In part, I think it is because the Sasanians and their symbols and their idioms of power were co-opted across the Iranian world in that period, including in Armenia and in Georgia. Hmm. Yeah, I wanted to get into talking about sources in particular, because that was one of the interesting aspects of this book is the sources you did use for it. Um, but before that, I thought maybe just generally for, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with this period of medieval history, uh, specifically Middle Eastern medieval history, would you just say a few words about general periodization um, as it pertains to both Armenian and kind of Persian Islamic history, maybe starting with Sasanian and then kind of going through Abbasid, mentioning like major dates or movements. When we're of, about? Yeah, exactly. Just kind yeah. of for the general sure. listener. Yeah. Sure. I mean, well, we could start the Sasanian period maybe in 224, um, but move it up into, um, into the 650s. The problem is Armenia was actually conquered. We would, we would say that um, the conquest of Dvin is very much contested, but we'd say around 640, uh-huh. 643 are the two big contenders for that date. So you see the switch over into the Islamic period right about then. Um, the early conquest period, I guess Islamic history would typically organize uh, by the periodization of usually Umayyad history, which is 661 to 750. Mm-hmm. And then to the Abbasid period, which goes from 750 to, to 1258. Okay. Uh, there is some of a push to recognize that there is a significant break in how the empire worked with the Marwanid reforms, which is something I talk about quite a bit in relation to Armenia mm-hmm. in, uh, in, the, in the 690s and early 700s, um, to see a little bit of a break instead of um, talking about the Umayyad period as a whole. Great. That's really helpful. And so then your book um, deals kind of with two periods at the same time in a way there's like kind of the history of eighth and ninth century in a way that you're trying to kind of see uh, open up but the sources you have talking about that are from the 10th century um as i understood it so could you talk just a little bit to us about what are these main sources that you are using for your book and uh what languages um were they written in and in the course of that, maybe you would want to mention any problems there are with the sources or how the nature of the sources impacted uh, your book or the approach you could take to your topic. Sure, thanks. Yeah, so mostly I was relying on Arabic and Armenian sources. 
with a particular interest in adding the Georgian and the Syriac, although there's also a somewhat of a smattering of Greek and, and Persian in there too. So the histories in Arabic and in Armenian reveal different sets of interests. So we have, for example, an account of some things that are only in Armenian or other things that are only in Arabic. And on top of that, neither the Armenian nor the Arabic traditions are uniform. So it's not like all Armenian sources agree to what happened. There are variations in the storyline within each tradition. So I'm particularly interested in how these traditions changed, how certain moments were remembered in different times and in different histories. So my point, I guess, isn't about what really happened at any given time frame, but rather how that moment became a point of contestation and a site of memory. That is how and why it was remembered. The entire, um, if the entire point of the project is to show that traditions can change over time, then it makes less sense to organize these things chronologically, but rather thematically, because that lets us bring these different sources into dialogue and figure out where the common ground is. And instead of making it about who is right or what actually happened, you could talk about how or why these sources tell the same um, snippets of, of the same stories in different ways. Yeah. I actually was really, um, that was a very striking feature of your book to me and one that um, I was really impressed by, I guess, and like uh, helped me think about Wow, another alternative way to think about doing history, taking kind of thematic approach rather than chronological, coupled with, or maybe even in. And I was wondering if that, um, did you kind of have a model to follow um, when you were developing that approach, or was that something that just kind of came to you that you had to take that approach because of the nature of uh, the questions you were asking? Well, I think that there's been a long, um, several decades long discussion or um, argument going on in early Islamic history about the value of the sources, knowing that they are Abbasid and how you could talk about the Umayyad period, given the fact that everything was written much later. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a few main sources that I found really pivotal in how I rethought my project as I was trying to kind of situate things. And these had to do with memory and the study of memory and how that can help us um, sort of get at some of the thorny problems with the source material. Yeah. So I'd say that two big ones for me there would be um, uh, Sarah Savant's book and Antoine Bourou's book, both mm -hmm. of which memory, uh, one in the case of Iran and the other one in uh, looking at Syria, but particularly Umayyads. Great. Yeah, I was kind of struck as I was reading the book that uh, so my interest does fall in this time period, so I'm going to be interested in the book no matter what. But for people maybe who are more doing, you know, early modern or contemporary modern history, um, I think they can find a lot of interest even just in that initial chapter of like the methodology section and discussing just the specific approach to a study of sources of another time period. Um, but moving more particularly into kind of the topics or arguments of your book, um, or maybe even just before we get to there, would you mind saying just a little bit about uh, what does Armenia look like in this end of Armenia and its neighbors? Sure, that's a really complicated question. Yeah. <laughs> no, that shouldn't surprise you, right? <laughs> There's not going to be an easy answer to that, but I think one of the fun things that I had, one of the fun realizations that I had, um, was a way to kind of um, 
question some of these assumptions that we have walking in or the sort of um, usual ways that we talk about things. So it's very, very common to see the discussion of the Khalifal North, um, which is how I usually refer to it because that's how it appears in Armenian and in Syriac and in Georgian and Arabic, the North, um, as a province that includes Armenia, Albania, and Georgia, Eastern Georgia that is. And it's very common to see people refer to the fact that in Arabic, the word Armenia in Abbasid era Arabic text means Albania and Georgia too. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, that's actually true for some texts, but it's not true for others. It's the product okay. of a so-called Iraqi school of Islamic geography, which is um, which in this case is clearly informed by pre-Islamic texts in Greek and or Syriac. So in other words, it's not necessarily an Islamic concept about Armenia, accepting as much as Muslims of the Abbasid period adopted and adapted the definition of Armenia. Uh, we also find another thread in these geographies associated with the Belfi school, which do not reveal knowledge of the pre-Islamic Greek or Syriac, and they instead describe Albania as separate from Armenia. So the idea of this sort of super Armenia that includes Armenia, Albania, and Eastern Georgia, yes, it does exist in Arabic, but there are other traditions where Armenia and Albania are very are very separate. Mm -hmm. and Albania is not part of the idea of a super Armenia or the definition of Armenia in Arabic uh, as it's usually understood, but that we need to understand if, if and when Armenia was sort of a broad catch-all toponym to refer to this larger area. My concern is um, is that we recognize the background of this tradition and the contesting threads of traditions that problematize and often claim truism about the Khalifa North. So it's not just about contesting truisms, but putting them into a broader context. So we understand where these things are coming from, where the super-Armenia idea is coming from, um, and which sources use it and which don't, and therefore what we're supposed to do with them or how we can use this uh, to, our, you know, to understand what's going on, broadly speaking, in our sources. Great. Thank you so much. Um, well then, if you're able, also not an easy question, but to get into um, trying to crystallize for our listeners, how would you talk about or describe kind of the central topic or argument um, of your book? Sure. So the topics, um, the topics are each uh, each chapter is organized by a, a specific theme or a specific topic. So mm -hmm. um, the first one is, as you said, this general intro that kind of relates Armenia to the broader Islamic world and also um, the studies about the Iranian cultural sphere, sort of what's at stake here type thing. And also the, the methodology, the, the, the importance of looking at things from, um, from the perspective of memory studies. Um, and from then, I have two chapters on geography. Mm -hmm. uh, mainly because of the robust Arabic geographical tradition of the early Abbasid period. And the first one deals with administrative geography, that is the relationship, as we said, between Armenia, Albania, and Georgia. And how does that map on to both Byzantine and Sasanian antecedents to try to figure out where that sort of thing is coming from. And the second one focuses on a description of frontiers, empire, emperor who was particularly famous and, and uh, remembered very, very clearly throughout the centuries. Um, I also have a chapter on rulers, meaning like governors and presiding princes and the local elites. Mm -hmm. and this, for me, was a particularly important topic given the revival of the title Shanshah in uh, The King of Kings by the Bagratun family, that is the branches both in Armenia and in Georgia, 
in the 10th and 11th centuries. And then I also looked at the ways uh, the region was ruled, so that what I call sort of mechanisms of rule. Basically, how Armenians and Georgians wrote about the relationship between the caliphate and the political elite, the religious elite, and then the masses. And then finally, uh, the last main topic or, or theme uh, is, a, is on treaties and taxes, which is probably not the biggest page turner in the book. <laughs> um, but still really worth it because it shows a sort of break in continuity. So even if we do talk about the importance of Sasanian history to understand political history, we recognize that it's not necessarily a, a continuation. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah, it sounds like, um, yeah, the, the like kind of particular approach or focus on like geography, administrative, you know, details or realities and these kind of like presentations of power, how you style power and kind of present it to others is maybe perhaps a way of like trying to get underneath the bias of the sources to see like, yes, we get the rhetoric of what the Armenians were saying about themselves in the time period, or we get what the Arab sources are trying to put forward, but what was it really like on the ground, perhaps? Yeah, I'm not really sure you could get at what it was really like. I think that's one of the problems that we need to disabuse ourselves of in a way, because uh -huh. really it's a question of how people present it, which is not the same thing as how it really was, okay. and choose to present it in very different ways, depending on what their goals are. Um, so to kind of break down the idea that it even matters what happened, mm. uh, but rather the resonance of it, of a, any particular event. Um, but yeah, I think in, cer in certain cases, you can kind of get at beyond that rhetoric, like you said, um, things like the use of the title Shansha or Malik Muluk, mm -hmm. or any, any variation thereof, uh, which demonstrates really that people are the sort of more lived experience, I guess, of uh, uh, that people find these things useful, even if you see anti-Sasinian rhetoric in Armenian sources. So there is that aspect of nature. Yeah. So one thing that struck me in reading the book was, um, so it, if we approach this topic kind of just from the perspective of Armenian studies, we see this time period as one where like, um, well, maybe just after the period you're interested in, or no, I guess in, in the topic of like, Oh, Armenian independence coming again, um, independent medieval kingdoms, Bagratuni, Artsuni. Um, but then if we look at it from kind of the more broader regional perspective, we see that Armenia was actually part of the caliphate at this time period or under that kind of administrative umbrella, if you will. Um, and so if you try to look at it with just kind of like Arab or Arabic on one side and Armenian on the other, and you try to put the threads together, it's it's hard to connect them in some ways. Um, but it seemed like what your book was advancing was the thread connecting the Arabic and Armenian is this like Persian or Iranian, uh, the Iranian milieu unites kind of the Armenian and the Arabic together. Right. So... I think a lot of it can come down to the Sasanians, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to get at in the book, that the Sasanians maintain their relevance way past the, the time, the, the fall of the Sasanian Empire, um, and they're used in different ways across the Iranian cultural sphere. So the Abbasids themselves will pick up on idioms of power that are based on Sasanian antecedents as a way to say, well, these guys are the Shah and now we are effectively sort of like a neo-Shah right? Mm -hmm. they, 
they put their um, uh, they put their capital right next to Contessaphon. There are stories about what should we do with the ruins of the Sicinian uh, the Sicinian palaces. There are also stories that compare specific Abbasid caliphs to Sicilian emperors. So it's clear that people are making this sort of discussion of power between the um, the Sicilians, the pre-Islamic Iran, and the and the caliphs. And one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is how you see this outside of the main centers of power, which would be in, say, Armenia or in Georgia, where the memory of the Sicilians is um, is also particularly vibrant. They they have a very strong idea of who the Sicilians were and what the place their place was in the Sicilian Empire. And they can understand the caliphs as being sort of a new iteration of the Sasanian Empire. Now, once you move past the period of caliphal rule, that's when you start to see in those independent kingdoms that you mentioned, the Babatuni kingdom, but also in the Artsuni kingdom of Askaragan, mm-hmm. where um, they're, they're still using Sasanian images and Sasanian ideas or um, vocabulary of power but they're using it for themselves instead of for the caliphs. And I thought that was an absolutely remarkable change. Yeah. Because if you think about the way that you see the the Sasanians in Armenian literature, this is Avarat, right? Yeah, negative portrayals all across the board. <laughs> right in center, right? So what does it take for a Bagartuni king to then wake up one day and say, well, I'm the Shalom Shah? That seems to be pretty remarkable to me. Yeah. I think a lot of it is this question of control over um, control over writing the past, but also making claims to power in a way that would be understood outside of Armenia. Yeah. So the word, the title Shansha or Malik Maluk or whichever language you want to do it in, and interesting that the Armenians actually do it in Persian, they say Shansha. Um, you see that straight across Iran in the same time period that you see the Babertunis taking it up. Yeah. So, Weeds also take the same title, and they also mint their coins as Malik Maluk, um, King of Kings in Arabic, in the same way that the Georgian Babertids did as well. Uh, so, in part, it's sort of, on one hand, you can have this sort of rewriting of the uh, history of the Sasanians in a way to make it make sense to you, but also, in part, it's the projection of power in a way that your neighbors are going to understand, a sort of mutually comprehensible idea about how you say that you are king and that people will listen to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought um, when you were discussing kind of <clears throat> the Bagratuni uh, co-option of the King of Kings title and kind of Sasanian um, stylings of power, um, I thought it was like a really astute point to kind of distinguish like Parthian from Sasanian um, when you when you came to that, that like... Um, in the Armenian realm, there's the memory not just of Sasanian, but the Parthian, particular title, King of Kings. This could be totally off, but it seems like for an Armenian at that time, it could also have like a biblical resonance, if you will. So like not just, maybe not just the like Sasanian realm, but maybe like, oh, we can take this title because it also has like a biblical use or something too, like you see the title King of Kings use here and there, but that that could just not be a relevant connection at all. That'd be a pretty um, pretty dramatic claim to make for a Bagartuni King. Yeah. Things <laughs> based on biblical precedent. There. Um, but I think the other thing is that you can't divorce Armenia and Georgia from what's going on outside. They know that the Buyids are calling themselves King of Kings. They know where it comes from. 
And one of the things I found after the book came out, actually, which I found really, really amazing, um, which is the description in Asahik of, um, of the Buyids, mm. where he calls them Ibn Khosrovan. Like, they, they're taking the Ibn, the son of, from the Arabic, and then Khosrov, which is the Armenian way of saying you know, Khosrov, but Kisra in, in, in Arabic. Mm. And um, you, can, you know that the Armenians are well aware of how other people make claims to power based on Sasanian antecedents. And they're doing it the same. They're using the same language, but very possibly using it to refer to something that is specifically Armenian, that makes sense in their context. Um, and that that's where the Parthianness comes in. I'll, I'll readily admit to that being a, a very much a what-if question. Right. Where you answer that well. But I found it a fun thought process. Definitely. Um, so kind of stepping back um, from the specifics of the book, um, when you think about kind of the broader field of Armenian studies or Arabic, Persian, Islamic studies or history or even like Byzant Byzantine medieval history studies, um, what would you kind of, how would you talk about kind of the main contribution of your book to these uh, broader fields that, that it um, is in conversation with? And what might it do that um, books before it haven't done, whether in kind of approach or the topics you deal with? Sure. So it's doing a couple things, actually. Um, largely, I think, discussing Armenia, Albania, and Georgia as caliphal provinces, that is tapping into questions that are main themes within Islamic historiography or what modern scholars are trying to do in understanding the early Islamic um, period instead of understanding it from specifically an armological or perspective. Um, it's not necessarily that it's new. As I said, Aram Tarawanian has already done this, but um, in the decades since he's passed, we've kind of moved away from this. Um, and also, as you already mentioned, the, uh, the idea that Iran is the thread that's going to bring these things together is also something that's not very commonly seen. Very, very usually when we're talking about Khalifa Armenia, it starts in 640. That's, you know, that's how when you, when you measure Khalifa Armenia. And I think it's one of the most important things is to be able to step back and say, actually, if we want to understand that, you need to understand what's going on right before it, mm -hmm. which means tapping into all this wonderful work that some, some amazing scholars have done recently on understanding Armenia and the relationship between Armenia and Iran, uh, which I think is, is central. So it is adding on to these things in a way, and I wouldn't have been able to do anything without, um, without this uh, structure already set. Um, but I think part of it also is that, you know, most of my inspiration, particularly for the conclusion and that sort of Parthianness that you were talking about, um, is coming from how people talk about the Buyids and the Samanids, the Buyids being in Iran and Iraq at the same time, and the Samanids in Khorasan in Eastern Iran. Um, and this comes down to things like the title, the title Shan Shah. And to me, these sorts of echoes of common themes don't necessarily mean that Iran is politically unified or anything like that. Um, it's not some sort of like pre-modern nationalism for, right. for a nation or anything like that. But rather it's a set of conversations that are compre comprehensible across the Iranian world. So even though there's no unity in the 10th century Iranian cultural sphere, whether we're talking socially or religiously or politically, they comprehend claims to power because they're using the same vocab here, quite literally. So the Sasanians, long since fallen, provide a sort of a neutral or combining idea of these different groups that we can turn to to sort of forward their own claims of interpreting the past. 
So what this example effectively does is to pull Armenia into broader discussions, integrating it into the uh, Islamic Caliphate and also the Iranian cultural sphere, um, even though both ways really to, to demonstrate to Islamicists and to people working in the broader Iranian sphere how important Armenia is to understanding some of these concepts of power, um, because it's not an Islamic thing. Mm -hmm. Clearly, the Armenians and the Georgians remain Christian, right? But they still tap into these same these same discourse. The Iranian political discourse in the 10th century is is not based on Islam, but rather shared across Muslim and Christian communities. That's great. Okay, yeah, I guess I was gonna maybe ask too about like reception of the book so far in Islamic and Middle Eastern studies, but it's probably way too early to even broach that kind of question <laughs> when I don't even know if it's been a year since the book has been out. <laughs> it has not yet been a year. Um, yeah, I mean, I've talked to some people who are very supportive in it and can see where I'm going, and um, I think largely it's not really out there enough to. Yeah. But I think it was, it's great that the book was published in like that Cambridge series of Cambridge Studies in Islamic Civilization. So, because I think it's a book that, um, like if you have an interest in Armenian studies, you're, you're going to kind of find it one way or another, um, if you're looking in this time period. But, um, the fact that it's, um, being like situated in this like broader field is I think a really good thing, um, for integrating Armenian studies and history of this time period with kind of the broader Middle Eastern or medieval history, Islamic right. history. Right. Well, you know, I mentioned Aram Tarawanyan as being a major, uh, major actor in this, in yeah. terms of the Arabic into the study of Armenia, but it goes the other way too, right? Like Islamists have not been doing very much in terms of integrating the Armenian stuff in. Of course, you have Avon, um, the main source from the 8th century, mm -hmm. a lot of people use. And then you also have the numismatists, since the coins are always studied as being part of you know, Islamic, Arabic, and iconic coins minted in Armenia. Those are always integrated. But other than that, Armenia doesn't really show up very much in sort of broad studies of early Islamic history. Yeah. So this is an opportunity to kind of shake that up a little bit. That's great. Um, before we go, would you just say a couple words about maybe what uh, current project or projects you're working on? or hope to work on in the future? Yeah, sure. So I actually have three going right now. Okay. <laughs> the two of them are collaborative projects that are actually really exciting. So um, they're at least moving along. The first collaborative project is a translation um, and addition that I'm working on with Sandra Laporta, as we mentioned earlier, uh -huh. of 8th century history of the Caliphate, which Great. we do want to be a history of the Caliphate rather than a history of Armenia, even though he was uh, of Ardhapets, who's writing in Armenian. Fascinating. And the uh, the point of it is to annotate it in relation to Arabic sources, uh, to make it more useful for Islamicists so that we can start to integrate these sources a little bit better into early Islamic history. And this has been a really interesting project um, because we're finding all sorts of things that I think we're, we're missing in the past. So just as one example to kind of illustrate what we're doing, um, there's this one part in the very famous Battle of Babylon in 775 where Hevland mentions a guy named Mahmed, and no one really knows what to do with that. And we found him um, oh, wow. in, in the Arabic sources. Oh, wow. to um, Muhammad ibn Hassan ibn Tahtaba, who's the son of the governor of Armenia at the time. So he's in the Arabic sources, and the, the storyline is in the Arabic sources. It's just not usually tapped particularly well. So we're finding sorts of answers to things that were kind of question marks in the textbook. Great. Uh, so that's so the first... Um, 
collaborative project, but the second one is on the purported correspondence between Almar ibn Abdulaziz, the Umayyad Caliph, mm. and Al-Ghazalim, which has also been a really wonderful experience because we have versions of this correspondence in Arabic, two versions in Arabic, one Muslim and one Christian, Armenian, Latin, and Ahamiyaro, and we're mm. publishing all of the editions and translations, several Fantastic. of which have never been published before. Fantastic. Um, and it's really it's great because it really demonstrates the interconnectedness of Near Eastern traditions, given the close connections between all five versions, some Muslim and some Christian. Yeah, is that also with Sergio Laporta or or someone? Yeah, else? he's also involved in that group as well as Tom Berman from Notre Dame, uh-huh. uh, Norte, uh, de Castilla from Ecole des Hautes and um, Sunyong Kim, who is okay. in, uh, in the institute in uh, in. South Korea, I'm totally blanking on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. There are no of us involved in that one, um, and it's it's pretty interesting to get everyone at the table to talk about the different versions. I'm sure. Um, but other than that, I mean, I have started working on research for the next monograph, uh, which I want to call Varda, who mentions a few heretics who go, um, who go who are called the, the Varda Pets of Satan. Mm. And this is a project that's coming out of an article that I wrote, I published it last really surprised of women who are playing a very central role in negotiating battling armies. And so, for example, in one case, the Muslim emir of the city of Artsin, Musa ibn Zulara, got into a, an argument or a, 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 an encounter with the Bagratuni uh, family. And when things went bad, badly for him, he sent his wife, who was the daughter or the sister of the Bagratuni, um, of the, the Bagratuni. And, um, what I found particularly interesting is that she's able to cross the battle lines because she effectively belonged to both communities. And this sort of story is really fascinating to me because it tells how people actually navigated difference in Armenia and Albania and in Georgia as well. I'm working on all three. And so I'm working on a new project about the role of medieval women in mediating difference, whether that's ethnic, religious, or linguistic, or some other marker of identity. And it's been a really fun project, but it's still in the first stages. So it's yes. a work in progress. That sounds so fascinating. Um, and on the title, it's so funny because Vartavedza is saying it's <laughs> hearing it with like the broader ears. It's like, okay, yeah, I do get how that could be too weird of a word to put in there. But hearing it with like your Armenian ears, it's like, that is such a flashy, like attention grabbing <laughs> title. You have to. <laughs> I know. Every, time I, every time I've tried to float it by someone, though, they're like, yeah, nobody knows what that means. <laughs> I'm not really sure. I, I mean, I'm not really sure. Varda of Satan. It's flashy because it doesn't make sense. in, in you know, a Varda yeah. of Satan. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, that's how it is in my head right now, and we'll see if I have to. If logic has to prevail. Yeah, or teachers of Satan or doctors you know? of Satan or something like that. Yeah, um, it loses some of it though. But yeah, I right. know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let me just thank you very sincerely for uh, coming on our show and talking about your new book. Well, thank you for having me. It was great to talk through it. And um, we would love to have you in the future uh, once some of these other projects turn into final book form. A lot to look forward to. <laughs> Definitely. Sounds like a plan. And with that, uh, we'll sign off and invite our listeners to join us next time on the Society for Armenian Studies podcast series. <laughs>